We're visiting today with David Cope, who was born in Detroit and raised in the Thornapple River in western Michigan. He has continuously edited and published Big Screen, an independent poetry journal for the past 42 years, an incredible accomplishment, and received an award in literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, a Pushcart Prize, and he was the Poet Laureate from 2011 to 2014 for Grand Rapids, Michigan. David has been working recently on a project called The Correspondence of David Cope and Ellen Ginsberg. 20 years worth of their correspondence. And David, let's just start talking about that because that's going to be interesting to people. Okay, so uh, I had uh, I had kept Alan's correspondence uh, because it was valuable to me uh, when I was a young poet. Uh, this went on for 20 years. Um, and eventually I transcribed it uh, for Gordon Ball and others. Uh, but I didn't keep my own stuff because at that time I didn't see the value in it necessarily. Although eventually I realized I'd, I wish I'd had it. It turned out Alan had kept most of what I sent him. And when I checked out his archive at Stanford, there it was. Um, I knew what boxes it was in and all the rest of that. But I really wasn't moved just yet to go after it because I had other projects in mind. Um, and what really got me started on this was when uh, Bill Morgan published uh, uh, Wait Till I'm Dead, The Uncollected Poems of Allen Ginsberg this, this year. And I saw that the postcard poem, which is a famous little poem in my circle, um, in, the, in that uh, 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 book. And I thought to myself, okay, I probably should get some of the documentation that would uh, show up the relationship, the editing relationship on that poem. So what this is, is November 11, 1984, Sunday. Uh, Alan is writing to me from China, and I immediately, it was like, it was a postcard, and essentially I immediately saw that it was a really good objectivist poem, and I, I wrote back to him and I said, why don't you uh, edit this any way you want, I'd like to publish it, and I did, in Big Scream 20. Um, it later turned up in this book, the, the uh, Morgan book I was talking about, and it turned out that my Chinese yeah. uh, uh, translator, Zhang, Zhang Ji King, um, was, is planning on publishing it in his three-volume history of 20th century American poetry, which is forthcoming from Beijing. Here's the poem. Dear David, hazy and steamer lounge, third day down Yangtze River, yesterday past vast mountain gorges and hairpin river bends, mist, sun, and cement factory, soft coal dust everywhere. All China got a big allergic cold. Literary delegation homebound after three weeks. Now I'm traveling separate like I used to, except everywhere omnipresent, chinely, kindly Chinese bureaucracy meets me at airports and boats and takes me to tourist hotels and orders meals. I'm trying to figure a way to get out. Envious of two bearded hippies traveling fourth class in steerage, eating tangerines and bananas. Sleepers in passageways on mats, Chinese voyagers playing checkers, saw Beijing, Great Wall, tombs and palaces, Su Chao's Hang Tang Gardens, Hang Chao's West Lake Walkway, dike to hold the giant water in the years of drought, built by governors of Su Tung Po and Po Chui. Saw Cold Mountain Temple with Snyder, who'd heard its bell echo across years. So that's my starting place. And uh, what I did is wow. I, 
<laughs> it's just a damn good poem. I about crapped when I saw it. <laughs> but anyways. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's so, Alan, and it, it makes you think about, about Kerouac talking about sketching, like yeah. just what's there. And, and you were mentioning the connection with the objectivist. Just for folks who aren't familiar or don't recall, what would, what would you give a couple lines to say what makes um, an objectivist uh, the poem. core of objectivism? Yeah, an objectivist poem, at least in Resnikoff's understanding of it, and Charles was my favorite of the group, although like there are three or four of them I really love. It is a poem that uses the details of the world that you are in in order to uh, explore the, the uh, issues that a poem raises. So Charles, for example, would write about uh, characters that he had seen on the street in the, Depre in the Depression era, and their stories or the things that they, that they do uh, tell the story of what his interior thought is. It's very similar to uh, Chinese empathy poems. And uh, you, you pay attention to details. You, you either keep yourself out of the poem per se, or you keep yourself as a character that may be in it, but who is not uh, trying to guide the reader as to how to interpret it other than in the selection of details. hope that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, and exactly is, uh, as I understand it, a haiku aesthetic too. Yeah. Where you uh, just give what's there in the moment and whatever emotion there is, is the, uh, must be, that reader has to contribute. Yep. yep. To fill in the meaning. Yes, they do. Yeah. That's exactly. Yeah. So uh, that was that. And I thought at that point, okay, I, I probably should write to Stanford or email to Stanford and see if I could get my letters at this point. It seemed like it's proper time in my life. I'm at the point of wrapping up a lot of circles in my life. And one of them was this 20 year correspondence, which I want to have in my archive when, you know, when I kicked a bucket, um, because it's something that for the students at my university, the University of Michigan, um, they can go in there, grad students and such, and, and uh, uh, explore the Allen Ginsberg materials that are in my archive, as well as a lot of other people's as well as my own, if they feel so inclined. The bottom yeah. line was I thought, okay, this was an important part of my life. I need to have it. So I wrote to uh, uh, Stanford and they said, this won't be a problem. We will make up PDFs of the letters and send them to you. And they did. Wow. And uh, I was just astounded by the, the whole thing. And within a few days I had all, pay, all 300 plus uh, handwritten pages of my letters which turned out to me much less than 300. Um, and I immediately started set about going through and um, uh, trans, uh, transcribing them. Um, what I originally, what I finally found out when I, when I got them out was um, I was such a dumb shit that I forgot to date or place the letters that I was writing a good portion of the first years that were there. And, people in Alan's office would guess the date. And um, they were very often quite wrong. And if you know about archives, <laughs> basically when a, when a poet sends his archive to a college, uh, his papers to a college archive, they don't change it. They leave it as it was. And so when I walked in there I, and started looking at my, that walked in, so metaphorically, I guess, uh, when I started looking at my stuff, I was finding things, you know, the most egregious example was the letter I wrote that had, uh, I wrote it about December 10, 1980. Um, it had my elegy, which I never published for Alan or for uh, John Lennon. 
and some ruminations about that and also discussions of a December 9 reading that I had had at Michigan, um, invited by Alan Perlman, a, a poet student that I had met at Boulder. So I knew this was a 1980 letter and exactly the month it was made. They had uh, filed it in the 1989 file. And there were a lot of letters mm. where uh, Al people in Alan's office couldn't figure out what it was. So it just, they just sort of dumped a lot of that stuff in the 88 and 89 file. And there were others that were misplaced by a year or two. And so I thought to myself, how the hell do I do this? I'm actually getting ahead of myself here, but that, I guess that's all right. Um, yeah. I, I um, decided that I was going to transcribe all the letters. And I, would, I had already transcribed Alan's. So I went through and I began placing them according to where they fit. And you can usually tell there's two things that happened. One was the letters themselves. I have root memory and a lot of them of what the situation was when I was writing, because I'm a big mouth and I'd talk about everything from the garden to uh, uh, what poetry project I'm on at the time and so on. And that helps place the dates. And then what I did is I looked at Alan's letters and I looked for corresponding things. So the, the Lennon letter is a really good example. That dealt with the elegy for Lennon, which they didn't, I didn't name him in there, but I knew that's what that was. And it was like ruminations on that. But the real kicker was the, the um, uh, Alan Perlman invitation to read at Michigan, which I knew happened on December 9. It was one of those readings you have where you're so choked with emotion, it's almost impossible to get the words out, but you somehow do it. And I thought, yeah. okay, this is December in 1980. And that was, it was that kind of thing that allowed me to place them in context by that and, and what was in right. Alan's letters. So that set me up at that point. With the yeah. With well, where are you with the project, by the way, right now? I mean, uh, almost done or in the middle or going at it for four to six hours a day. Although recently I've been ch I've changed over to back to my Dante project, which is a continuous thing too. Mm -hmm. um, four to six hours a day for about four months, um, where uh -huh. I was just going through this and that and the other thing. We uh, Jim Cohn and I went through a really heavy period in the latter part of July where we were finding all the um, uh, typos and things that were misplaced and so on. Um, so at this point, it's nearly done. Um, I'm going to be going to see my archivist sometime in the fall down at Michigan. And uh, we've talked about publications and I've had several other people say, you got to get this thing in print. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, maybe. Um, the key thing was completing that circle in my, my life, which I did. There'll be poetry coming up. I just figured I wanted to find a way to fit it in. I, you know, I do have some other stuff up here that I thought, well, there's a, uh, the time when Alan read it uh, in, in my college in, in uh, 1992 or three, I can't remember, 93, I think, where uh, I took notes on his two lectures and I wrote them all down. And then afterwards, he and I sat down and he corrected things, uh, made changes and the rest of it. Hmm. And there was really a collaborative document and it really captured his political positions during that period, as well as his feelings about uh, mm. uh, religion and censorship and a lot of other things. The problem is that it's prose and it reads like a prose document and it goes on for three pages. So I thought, well, let's not leave that. Let's not do that mm. now. <laughs> so uh, if it's okay, I'd like to pick so up on... Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just saying it was so wonderful that Alan got out and read so much, so many places. I mean, I saw him in so many different 
pretty where I happen to be living and he'd come through reading, you know, it's just wonderful. Yeah, after we'd been corresponding for a couple of years, if I remember, I had a reading to come up and introduce myself. So we were in uh, Washington, D.C. area with two old friends and went to see Alan in Baltimore. And I came up and introduced myself after the reading. And we, uh, he, he wound up inviting me to a party where he had just gotten all of the uh, Freedom of Information Act documents on what the FBI was doing to le- uh, new left protesters mm-hmm. during those years. And he said, where were you? And I said, Ann Arbor, Detroit. He looked it up and he had all of the FBI letters and what the, how they were planning to co-opt the demonstrators there. It was when I first learned that the Michigan Daily, the school's newspaper, had a, had a mole in it. <coughs> and a lot of the other things that happened there, there was, there was one that was particularly funny where, uh, I guess you'd say funny, um, some agent in Detroit uh, wanted to use pig blood and throw that on little old ladies, uh, have a guy that's dressed up like a hippie and throw that on little old ladies that were near the thing and have a TV camera placed there to make us look even worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the central government agency said, no, we aren't going to do that. <clears throat> Thankfully, they showed a little sense. Anyways, yeah. so back to the, to the thing here. Uh, sure. The two perspectives on the book, uh, one was... Uh, when I was beginning to think in terms of uh, uh, possible publication down the road, one of the things that struck me as very different about my letters with Alan and the others was when you look at him with people like Ferlinghetti or uh, Kerouac or some of the other uh, different Mm -hmm. letter collections that are already out, those are letters between peers. And they have, you know, the Snyder letters, for example, you get the nuts and bolts of how to do a collaborative community. And with Ferlinghetti, it's the publication side of his life. Uh, with Kerouac, it's more complex. Because <laughs> <laughs> Kerouac was real trouble in a lot of ways. But um, I, my letters, and I think Mark Olmsted's to a certain extent, too, are letters that deal with... Uh, the young poet who is growing through the influence of the older poet, what, in, uh, what has been called in novel work, the building's roman, growth of the young poet's mind with the older friend um, over the years. Um, there's really three parts to that, and I'll get into them later if we have time, um, because there are three different phases in that relationship that Alan and I had. Um, the second one was I made a point of doing notes that would contextualize a letter. Sometimes there are things that are implied in the letter that I knew, Alan knew, sometimes Jim Cohn would know because he was there a good portion of the time too, even though he wasn't part of this correspondence. Um, But which would not be uh, apparent to someone who is not familiar with that time period or the rest of it. So I set up these notes and as a result, it's sort of like the letters themselves are the young poet growing. The notes are the older poet commenting on uh, what the letters have to say, if that makes sense. So it's a, a yeah. dual, dual voice when it comes to me. Um, right, yeah. Uh, and I wanted to have both of those things there because it allowed me to have a more uh, reflexive sort of collection, if that makes sense. So <laughs> any questions at this point? No, that's a really good idea, actually. I mean, you, you looking back on what it all meant, or what it means to you now, how you understand yeah. its meaning. Yeah. Makes well, a lot of sense. There's some letters, especially in the first group, uh, the 1976 to 79 group. I was a young kid that had seen him as a sort of culture hero, the way so many of us do. I, I had won a couple of local contests. 
I was pretty sure I had a talent, but I wasn't really positive. And I'd, I'd published my first few chapbooks. And I, I reached a point after the 1973 National Poetry Festival, which came to Allendale. That's where I first saw the objectivists and Robert Duncan and Rex mm -hmm. Roth and a lot of other people. Um, and Alan. Uh, Alan had given me his address at that point, And I thought, okay, I've got this little chapbook called The Stars. And I just took a chance and I sent it to him. And he wrote back and he said, this is excellent. It reminds me so much of Charles Reznikoff. And, and he wanted me to, he wanted 10 more copies and was sent me a little check to cover the cost. And he was going to mail them to all these famous writers. And I thought, Jesus, what is this? I was, I was sort of bowled wow. <laughs> over to put it mildly because, you know, I was a hick from the sticks is what it came down to. I wasn't part of any poetry scene, the, you know, major poetry scene. So I, I really wasn't very sophisticated in terms of the way poets relate to each other. And, uh, I'd been working blue collar on top of it. So, you know, basically that uh, cussing and hauling type stuff that you do when you're a factory worker or a custodian. I mean, I had the big vocabulary when I needed it, but most of the time I didn't. And uh, so I started writing them. And it was sort of like, um, in fact, Kurtwell Gordon and I have talked about this, the, the problem of you build a mask of what that person must be like based on what you've seen from their public personae. And... Uh, so I had to find a way to break through the mask is what it came down to, to meet the real Alan. And there were times when I was a total idiot, to put it mildly. <laughs> some of the stuff in some of those letters, I just, there's times I just cringe when I look at what I wrote. And, uh, and yet Alan was constantly patient with me, constantly opening doors for me and, and the rest of that. And there was a point at which I think there were a number of things that happened in those first sections. First, there's the culture hero problem. And the second one was we found that um, we had a lot of similar interests in international poetics, in international poetry. And we wound up talking. There was one point where there's an American Airlines letter that he sent me that's like three and a half pages long that he wrote while he was on a flight um, explaining Blake's... Um, uh, for Zoas, which, you know, he's going into detail and he's doing it very succinctly uh, as far as the for Zoas goes. And he's ruminating on the fact that he's got this uh, 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 young poet that has been reading with him in Baltimore during this period who is uh, uh, telling him to stop being a poetry businessman and do poetry and that they read all weekend. <laughs> We talked about the poetry traditions is what it came down to. And of course, mm. uh, one of the things that started that was in, uh, after Alan had written me initially in 76, um, I immediately wrote him and said, can you send a copy of this thing to Charles Reznikoff? And he wrote me a, a, a letter back quite quickly saying, alas, Reznikoff died recently. And he had a memory of eating, uh, eating his supper with him in a 12-story apartment over on the west side of Manhattan. I looked up the, lo the, the location and, and the exact apartments that Charles was in are still there, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. But at any rate, that was where it began. And we talked to the objectivists. We talked to people like Blake and Whitman, um, eventually getting on to some of the other things. And, you know, Alan was constantly getting new poets coming into him from around the world, either for, from his visits or from reading. And uh, we were sort of talking back and forth what my discoveries were, what his were. The other thing that I think kept that conversation going 
in spite of my being a naive idiot in some ways, um, was that I had a magazine, Big Scream, already. You've already mentioned it. And I was eager to publish new bright poets uh, that uh, from around the country. And I'd already begun doing that. And uh, he said that there's one letter where he says, uh, there's, there's been an unusual harvest of very brilliant young writers that have come up right now. And uh, he immediately named Andy Clausen, um, whose early uh, chapbook, Shooby Dooby Eop, features some of my still favorite poems of his, The Derelict Women Poets, for example, great poem. Um, so he sent me uh, Andy's book and I began trying to get him on board. And uh, uh, eventually we got to know Antler and some others. And of course, Alan pushed my poetry, Andy's and Antler's as three different inheritors of literary strains for all those years, or 15 years or so. At any rate, uh, we got into a habit where he would send me these young poets. And that, that really was what cemented things in the 70s. Uh, yeah, he was very good at that. I mean, yes, he was. You know, he just was, was so good about helping young poets, and young and poets. also well, if, if a magazine asked for something from him, starting up, he would tend to send them something. You know. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I suppose comes out of that was uh, uh, eventually when we got into the eighties. I'm going to try going through these three sections next: the eighties, nineteen eighty to nineteen eighty nine. Um, there was um, uh, the Kerouac Conference of nineteen eighty two. I was hesitant to go to that. There's a letter in which I said, I wonder if we're just reliving old dreams, you know, steal a car and go up in the mountains yeah. type of thing. Um, and I was a little hesitant and I, and I also was uh, uh, wondering what it might involve and all the rest of that. And part of it was I was working as a janitor and I didn't have much money. And uh, eventually what happened is Alan had me in as an honored guest um, where I got an apartment without having to spend money, you know, a place to stay. Yeah, and yeah. Um, that sim simplified it a little bit, and I came out. Um, eventually, I got to do a reading in front of 400 people with uh, uh, Jack Micheline and uh, Peter Orlowski, which uh, Micheline not bad. <laughs> Micheline was a special treat for me because he was a you know a dock worker poet, and uh, I was still working the custodial thing at that time, and. Uh, I got done with my reading and he just put his hand on my shoulder and said, good job. And I don't know if it was or not, but it was sure a nice thing to get. So the yeah. Kerouac conference was sort of a, an opening where I got to meet a lot of people, see a lot of people and all the rest of that. And I also got to see how that crazy scene operated on a deeper level. I'd already been out there in the in 1980 to, to lecture on Resnikoff and Charles, uh, Mar uh, excuse me, Marson Hartley. But the 82 one was the opening really. Um, Alan then wrote a foreword for me for my, what he want. it was like, uh, publish this guy. But the first chapter was really looking at the poetics of what I was doing. And I wrote him back and I said, can I use that for a foreword for my first book? Um, Humana Press in New Jersey was going to publish Quiet Lives, my first book. And uh, Alan and Jim Cohen had helped me a lot with the initial editing on that. And so Alan sent me that thing, and I used that as the forward. So my first book had the forward from him. Um, after that, there was the uh, 1986 um, publication of my On the Bridge, my second book, which um, uh, Alan and two others were the ones that selected that for the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters Awards, which now I think is just the American Academy. 
at any rate, and I went out there and I met all these hot shots that uh, I, it's actually the first time I met uh, Gary Snyder, sat down and had lunch with him. Um, so, so there were little openings like that that helped me find my way in, as it were. I suppose beyond that, there's the 1987 Objectivist Conference where I was paired with uh, Carl Rocosi and I, uh, I did, uh, uh, what would you call it, uh, seminar type stuff with Marie Serkin, who is Resnikoff's widow. And uh, Rokosi was, reading with him was one of the great highlights of my life. And uh, there were some wonderful things about that visit, which involved um, uh, Alan and Carl and I would have breakfast every morning and Alan would make his weird oatmeal and uh, with seaweed. And uh, there was one time when Carl, looked at that seaweed and he said, I don't know about this stuff. And I said, well, tell you what, I'll be Mikey and I'll be the person that tries it out. And I, I, I did it and uh, it was good. And I said, well, it's a little salty. And he said, okay, we'll give that a try. So there were little things like that, you know, that just were yeah. wonderful little moments together. Uh, the uh, American Academy Award came in 88 actually. And uh, I had been, and you can find this in the letters actually, I had been planning on doing an anthology of poets my generation. I had the original four, 14 people that were going to be in that book and the letter was in 1982 or 83. I can't remember when. So I had this idea in my mind for a long time, but I thought, you know, how the hell can I do this? I'm working as a janitor. And uh, that American Academy Awards gave me 5,000 bucks. And what happened was we got two young poets from Grand Rapids area, uh, uh, Chris Ide and, and Joel Cushai. Jim Cohn flew in out of wherever he was living at the time. And we went down, Kushai's father was a computer professor at, uh, at Michigan State. And uh, we all went down there and in one night we entered the entire book and uh, drank more coffee than I care to think of at this point. And uh, I, I got it published in a, an edition of 1500 and uh, sent out copies to all the different poets. There were actually, I think 17 in the end. And, uh, uh, that thing stayed in print for about 15 years. I've still got four or five copies that I keep for someone special when they show up. So oh. that was 1988. And uh, the other thing was I began working on an eco-poetics conference at Naropa. Um, oh, okay. I had been involved with that from 1970 Earth Day when uh, at Michigan, my, my uh, then girlfriend Sue and I uh, went to a big conference there and we began to be much more aware of the whole concept of ecology in that. And uh, Antler and Jeff, of course, Jeff Ponyevash, Antler's uh, longtime lover, right. uh, taught eco-poetics all over the place in, in Milwaukee. And he was also a great activist on behalf of the Milwaukee River Trail. So we had several people on our bunch that were really heavily committed to this. I'd been doing a lot of research by the, at my college on my breaks because we had a great ecology office there. And so I'd get done with my custodial work. I'd take a half hour, I'd go up to that office and I would research legislation that was being involved, introduced, um, basic things that needed to be covered and that sort of thing. And then I had a basic list of people that I thought should be invited to this conference. And I sent it first to Ann Waldman, um, then to Alan with the second list. And what happened was somewhere out of that thing, they developed the eco-conference that happened at Naropa in 1980. Uh, uh, Excuse me, 1990. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, yeah. behind myself, I guess. So that's all documented in those letters. 
Um, it's one of the things that I'm really kind of proud of having done in my life, uh, setting that thing yeah, up. Yeah, you definitely you should. Uh, you should get this thing published because people are going to be interested in hearing these these stories of the sort of inside of yeah. what was going on. You know. Yeah, some um, of the stories are only hinted at. But, <laughs> but uh, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. I'm still kind of teetering on that one, but we'll see. Um, yeah. Finally, the last section. Um, uh, during this period, I was also publishing Alan a lot too. And there's a, one of the uh, appendices at the end has all the different places where I published him, as well as all the places where he got me published or got me an event or whatever. So it was a, a reciprocal relationship. Um, when he came to GRCC in 92, um, I wanted to have him out there. Um, at that point, uh, in spite of being the most famous poet in America, he didn't have enough money to get his teeth fixed. And so I got him a, a reading at, at, at the college. He got enough money and he got his teeth fixed as a result of things like that. So that, that mm. reading and lectures at CC is interesting because it does have that collaborative document, which I won't read, but it's in the, it's in mm. the letters because in a way it is part of the, the correspondence between the two of us. And it is the, that and the poet, uh, the postcard poem are the only collaborative uh, poems that I've, I've had so far. Uh, after this, there was the Beats and Rebel Angels conference, which uh, Ann and I had been talking about that. Uh, you know, Creeley had had a, a, a conference on his behalf uh, when he turned 70. And I said, you know, Alan needs this too. And uh, Ann, Bob Rosenthal, and I and others uh, were talking about, you know, Alan's already got that that uh, uh, congestive heart failure in early stages at that time. And we thought, yeah. if we're going to do this, we better do it soon. Um, what happened is the poetics department at Europa took over the idea and um, they wound up with this, uh, I guess you'd call it the last, the last uh, hurrah of the beats when you get right down to it. Uh, so many of them have died since. Um, but it was a great conference and there, there's not much in there about that. It's basically, thanks for having me come in. I read at Boulder High School and it was a packed auditorium and I was scared shitless. I was on a, <laughs> I was on a, 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 a bill that included me and Ed Sanders as the openers and then uh, Galway Cadell and Sharon Olds as the, as the uh, people that came after us. And that was really fun. Um, That's a great lineup. Yeah, yeah, it was. I, I, I got to read on a stage with Sharon Olds and Galway Cannell. I mean, you know, not to slight Ed in any ways, because he's a great writer, too. No, of course, he's super, too. Yeah. <laughs> Wild man. I've read with him two or three times. At any rate, uh, uh, after that, there were only a couple more things. Uh, in that last section, most of the letters are from me. Um, Alan's health was failing. And uh, there were times where he would communicate with me through telephone. I still wrote letters. And so it looks like I'm the only one communicating it a lot of the times, but it really is. There's, there's little yeah. things here and there that say, you, uh, I say, you told me this, this is what I want to reply to, as it were. Um, there was the Jewel Hart retreat. Um, he was very much connected to uh, Jewel Hart community in Ann Arbor. Um, he did three classic readings, and I do mean classic. They're three of the best readings he ever gave in Ann Arbor in 1994, where he read Howell, 1995, where he read Kaddish, and 1996, where he introduced a whole new group of poems. He was going to read in 97, but of course, he died before that happened. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, 
at any rate, we went out. Uh, he called me up one time. Uh, he says, yeah, I'm out in Gun Lake, about 30 miles from you. Can you want to come over here and spend a couple evenings? And I said, hell yes. So I jumped in the car, went out there, and uh, it was a Jewel Heart Communities retreat for the summer. And um, uh, Gallic Rampoche um, had his lectures, and they had things where they had discussions and the rest of that. But they also wanted Alan and me to read poetry to them, so we did. And it was kind of a real special little moment together. And then I'd just go home each night and uh, muse on what I'd just experienced. Mm -hmm. uh, the end of the game, I guess we would say, is closing the Bardo. Um, and what is it, 49 days or something that the Bardo is open after someone dies? Mm -hmm. Something to that effect. Yeah. At, at any rate, um, the uh, 1997 reading in Ann Arbor was rescheduled because of Alan's death, and they set it on the date of the closing of the Bardo. And uh, they had all sorts of different people come in, famous and not so famous. The headliner was Patti Smith. Um, um, Oh, God, there were a bunch more. But anyways, lots of poets. Um, and I got to read with that bunch, too, and read my elegy. I should point out that when Alan died, I was one of the last people he called. I don't know if everybody knows that or not, but he called a lot of his friends to say farewell, which I always thought was really a beautiful little gesture. Mm -hmm. um, Bill Morgan called me the next morning and said, sit down. And I knew exactly what had happened at that point. Yeah. And he said, look, Alan's passed we need to have some people that meet the press. And I said, okay. Um, and he said, I'd like to have you take the phones between 10 and two or 10 and three, something like that. And I said, yeah, I think I could do that. I'm teaching a multicultural lit class out at the college, but uh, I think they'll teach themselves when I explain this to them. So I went in my office and I got calls from these papers all over the country wanting a quote about Allen. And uh, that was, <laughs> it was a very strange experience for him. Yeah, right. At any rate, after he left, uh, there is the coda in the letters, which includes um, um, letters that I wrote to Jim Cohn. Uh, the first one was a, a very, uh, uh, what would you say, comprehensive description of that closing the Bardo ceremony. So there's about three, three to four pages, I'm not sure how many, that deal with that. Uh, what happened when we were there, who were the performers, all the rest of that, and uh, my own perceptions of the event. Um, and after that, I, 98, a letter to Jim where I went to Boulder because I wanted to see what had happened to Naropa in the, in the year after. And uh, um, I went in. Uh, Jim was gone, but he let me stay in his apartment. And Ed Sand when I got arrived, Ed Sanders did a beautiful uh, mm. lecture on Alan's life. And what I did is I recorded up to the point where I knew the materials myself. He had a lot of details about Alan's early years that were very, very good. And uh, that was that. So, um, wow. and I guess the key thing. Well, this is definitely an interesting project, insight into your relationship with Alan and yeah. another angle on, on Alan's life. Yeah. Here are the two elegies. Here are the elegies. So the first one is the one that I wrote when I knew he was dying. It's four memories from our times together. For Alan. That summer in the mansion on the hill, you and Peter in spacious kitchen, fretting over chicken soup, seaweed, Tibetan tea, the nightly readings, Chris Ide and I dashing through halls and rooms upstairs in our underwear, chasing each other, giggling rowdies rolling across beds, 
wandering in the basement, perusing the huge library, singing old Kerouacki, Catullus, Kit Smart, and Shakespeare's sonnets aloud together. You upstairs all night, answering mail, yakking, long distance, scribbling, surprised by visitors, as I lay in the next room and watched the million stars fill the night over the flat irons, singing myself to sleep. Or that time in your apartment, 12th Street, I come to read in your Brooklyn series, racing to work, to class, to plane, LaGuardia, taxi dash, downtown in bright springtime, exhausted. Steve showing videos, you at the Wailing Wall, and old Reznikoff, our shared love introduced by George Oppen, steely voiced compassion, my reentry into New York. Gavelta Fish, Peter and the Wolf, after everybody cleared out, you and I, soft reunion, both drazed, drained and crazed work lives, both sleeping 20 hours, waking together Saturday evening, going out, bite to eat at Christine's. New York Times, cabbage soup, chocolate cake. A Danish family recognized you, sent their kid over for an autograph. You yakking and drawing elaborate skull and stars and flowers, personal greeting with final pen flourish for their bright eyes. Friendly, welcoming the parents their first time in America. For that summer where you'd injured your thigh, lay naked on floor, your apartment boulder as a young girl massaged pain spots, relaxed nerves, and we sprawled around you singing Campion and Doland, Steve, as director, gave us parts, ba uh, bass, baritone, tenor, singing again and again, crooning to find the shared voices in the dream. Poets coming and going, staying a time, always singing, singing deep into the Elizabethan night as boulders, sirens shrieked and traffic flashed beyond. And in later years, both too busy, yet your call sped me to a Buddhist retreat, Yankee Springs, only 20 minutes from my home, two afternoons, scribbling notes together in the lodge as Gellick spun the word through Gun Lake Sunset, or meeting backstage after Howell and Caddish, Ann Arbor, too tired to speak, no need to yak, comfortable merely to sit an hour in each other's silent presence as stagehands gathered props and instruments, your kiss disappearing into the night, your hand waving, pulling away. And now calling each of us before the press releases go out, Generous gesture, even dying, passing burden and light from Walt through Williams, you and Jack, to those who through those who remain, to new nippled generations struggling even now to be born. That's the the one I wrote, and it came out. I think I changed yeah. one or two words. It just came out gushing at that point. This one's written a bit later, and it, it's short, much shorter. This is called Lost Loves. It's primarily to Alan, but it also is to a lot of other friends that I've lost over the years. Lost Loves. Old man, slim boy, and boy to be. I wake in the cold moon where even the crickets lie silent, and the leaves hang in the flooding mist, black streets silent. Even the midnight screamers gone to bed at last. And hear you, though lost forever, singing in my ear, Feel your tender touch as you stroke my forehead. So many gone down the lost river. So many waiting now for you and me to join them. Singing in some night apart. Shadow faces alight with secret fires. Flood, love that floods even this room. If only we turn to it and make it ours. So that's oh, it. yeah. Oh. That, that's, that's, um, yeah that's, that's a beautiful way to end. Yeah, okay.
Yeah, we've been talking with Michigan poet David Cope about his long relationship and correspondence with Allen Ginsberg. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Munley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.